0: Hey, it's your host, Kamea, and you're listening to Green Dreamer. As a community-powered podcast, we cannot keep our episodes going and alive without more direct support from our listeners. And in this critical time, independent media shining a light on often sideline perspectives and topics is more important than ever. So if you're learning from us and are moved by our conversations, you can reciprocate a gift of any amount at greendreamer.com support.
1: If we can say that violence, as you point out, is a continuum throughout human history, but we don't think that violence is necessarily natural, then how do we account for the ways in which violence can constantly reinvent itself and can be constantly resmuggled back into the social system?
0: Today, we're speaking with Professor Brad Evans, a political philosopher, critical theorist, and writer whose work specializes on the problem of violence. His work is particularly concerned with addressing the multiple forms violence takes in the world while developing a more poetic critique that highlights the importance of the arts and the imaginary. The author of 19 books and edited volumes, along with over 100 academic and media articles, he currently holds a chair in political violence and aesthetics at the University of Bath, United Kingdom. We begin as Brad offers a glimpse into his earlier, pivotal moments that shaped the lenses through which he sees the world today.
1: My work is very much been focused on the problematic of violence and trying to interrogate the multiple ways that violence arrives at our lives and and try to rethink the very concept of what violence actually means beyond obviously just traditional men on battlefields. And I think it's it's only more recently that I have come to accept the multiple ways in which violence was also part of my life and growing up. And I think when you grow up in conditions of poverty like I did, you don't necessarily dwell upon them as being conditions of violence or yeah, It's it's not something which you kind of, it's almost like it's too close for you to critically evaluate with any kind of meaningful purchase, I think. Now, in terms of my background, then, so to talk about that background, I grew up in the South Wales mining valleys in the United Kingdom. Now, this was a, an area which was once synonymous as being the, the most effective and the most profitable coal mining region in the world. But it gradually you know like many mining in communities underwent rapid transformation and rapid decline now I grew up in I was born in nineteen seventy four where there was an official government british government report which basically headlined that the valleys were dying, so I was born in a year where the valleys were officially <laughs> declared as its own kind of mortuary and growing up in that in that condition was one in which you learn i guess a great deal about everyday insecurities, everyday vulnerabilities, the lasting effects of a toxic ecology, and also learning to live in conditions of acute poverty, which at the time, maybe they don't register as such. But when I look back upon them now, you'd certainly recognize how much poverty there was and and it wasn't just a story that was unique to me, but it was a story that was very common to pretty much all of the friends that I had and pretty much the entire community in which we grew up in. So through that, I guess you then start to have a very different sense of your understanding of what, not necessarily security because you never had any really, but what insecurity actually meant. And the idea you, t- you mentioned food insecurity and What meagre food you had, you knew, was always very insecure. So there's a great deal of discussion in the UK today around, you know, people should eat healthy lifestyles. But when I was growing up, even eating fruit and vegetables wasn't really an option because they were beyond affordability. And that, you know, affordability is also something which is still denied a lot of people today as well, especially in particularly, as you know, the United States or especially places like the United Kingdom as well.
0: Yeah, so I'm sure all of this has helped to inspire you to look at violence with more holistic lenses. And Oxford defines violence, for example, as behavior involving physical force intended to hurt, damage, or kill someone or something. Or the other definition is the strength of emotion or an unpleasant or destructive natural force, end quote. Just to set the stage for the rest of our conversation, I'm curious how you've come to define it and what common perspectives on it you've been called in to challenge.
1: I don't necessarily have a a catch-all definition for violence because violence takes so many different forms. I I know... Mm -hmm. I know the kinds of violence which I am very much hesitant against kind of agreeing with and they tend to be largely linked to the two definitions you put forward in the sense of, you know, we have this common assumption, first of all, around for there to be violence, there needs to be physical harm. And that in itself, we know the types of harm that people can experience are multiple So psychological violence can sometimes be just as devastating as physical violence, although we need to be very mindful also that we don't just flatten all violence, that it becomes meaningless, or we simply say that somebody being the victim of a small kind of verbal assault is far worse than somebody who routinely suffers extreme physical violence because the two things are not comparable. But I do think that we need to recognise the multiple ways in which violence can be physical and non-physical in our lives, The other aspect in which the other definition which you talk about is almost like this violence as a natural force. Now, I think there's two Mm. things which I can bring back to your question. First of all, if we understand questions around violence linked to ecology, and this is one of the, I guess, one of the big shifts in our understanding that we've had, certainly over the past 20, 30 years, is to understand ecologies of violence and ecologies of suffering. I think the The recognition, first of all, that we know, for instance, when people suffer from what they believe to be natural disasters, most natural disasters are not natural at all. They're the outcome of sustained positions within structures of neglect and structures of poverty. So overwhelmingly, most of the victims of so-called natural disasters are poor people. And that's not a coincidence. That's because of the structural conditions which give rise to conditions of vulnerability and insecurity. Now, in terms of the way in which I've also tried to then challenge some of the prevailing assumptions around violence, I guess it's precisely this argument that humans are necessarily naturally violent. I don't believe that's the case at all. I I think there's a history of the human condition, which is a history of violence, of course but I don't think that humans are naturally violent. If that was the case, we'd be more violent than what we actually are. And often we find actually one of the questions we ask is not why are humans violent, but why are they not more violent given the conditions of desperation so many people face on a day-to-day basis and i think a lot of learned studies show that actually it takes a lot for a person to become violent a lot of culture and a lot of education into becoming learned subjects who are willing to engage in violence most violence that we see actually is that we experience in the world it's seldom actually spontaneous and it and it's actually seldom random attacks and of course we know there's random attacks which happen but it's, that's only a small percentage of violence. Most violence is reasoned, rationalized, calculated, and a great deal of organization goes into it. And that in itself then, I think, challenges this assertion that humans are just simply naturally violent. And if we think if we accept that humans are actually not naturally violent, I think we can have far more optimism about the nature of the human condition rather than just simply buying into the idea, oh, well, you know, violence is just something that we do to one another.
0: Yeah, I think this really highlights how important the broader context is, because when we're forced to confront different crises or placed in different environments or circumstances, that really ends up affecting how we end up showing up. So Mm -hmm. it's really important to not, I guess, take this really narrow view of what a person is as this individualized self and to understand what exactly the broader picture looks like. And what I'm considering is that if violence in one form is seen as the takedown and a breakdown of someone or something, whether tangibly or intangibly, I wonder if we might even understand violence as something that is actually a constant, because the creation and birth of anything in a literal sense almost always requires the decomposition and breakdown of something else. And even beyond the literal sense, the birth and expansion of say, a centralized economy, often comes from the breakdown of decentralized and place-based systems and communities. So in other words, has the dominant, simplistic perception of violence as bad prevented us from really seeing how it shows up in the world and therefore how we might need to transform it into other forms in order to reduce sickness and suffering? Mm Mm-hmm.
1: No, I, I absolutely agree with you. And I think it's too easy to kind of associate violence with something which is purely negative, or indeed aligned in its more extreme forms with something which Freud would have associated with the death drive, for instance. We know, you know, the history of the modern period from the 17th century onwards has really been about a history of violence as progressive. And and I don't mean the violence is progressive, but it's presented in that way in the sense that violence becomes a condition of possibility for as you mentioned, for decomposing and recomposing subjectivities, for for reconstructing social orders for and in that sense, there is a um almost like a natality and a rebirth to violence, where violence becomes this condition of possibility for remaking the world constantly and remaking ourselves constantly. And that's why, you know, one of the things about political violence, which is a distinct modern phenomenon, really, and when we think about it, if we try to separate it from older religious kinds of violence, even though the modern condition has a great deal of religiosity to it, it's precisely this idea that in order for violence to happen, it needs to be justified. Political violence always needs its justification. It always needs its moral armory. And that moral armory is often done in the name of progress. It's often done in the name of if we are going to commit violence upon a certain group of people, then our lives will progress as a result of it, you know. And and it was precisely the rationale which underwrote the wars on terror, the idea that if we bombed Afghanistan, that the people would be liberated and therefore their future would be better. So this idea then of violence as being distinctly progressive. And I think that's, you know, if we understand violence in that way, then, of course, we need a far more formidable critique of violence and the violence in which we actively invest in ourselves, the violence which is very much linked with our own discursive narratives around we believe that the progressive will of history is on our side or even much more broader. Frederick Nietzsche argued that war was the motor of history and what he meant by that was war war was the motor of progress. But we also know that technology is the motor of war. So We have to constantly keep ourselves in check around the types of violences which we are constantly recreating and remaking in a way which renders entire populations disposable to that violence.
0: Yeah. And also on political violence, you share that history teaches us time and time again that political violence is not carried out by irrational monsters. It is rationalized, reasoned, and calculated, end quote. You also Mm -hmm. share that it is purely subjective in a way that goes beyond the idea that it's based on who is experiencing or perceiving the violence i'd love if you could expand more on this as well as maybe share some examples of political violence being justified that we might recognize in the recent years
1: starting with with the second part of that i we can learn a great deal about violence by asking who is the intended audience now mm. One of the things about violence, of course, is the the way in which it plays out as a as a public spectacle. And and again, you know, we, we might first of all go back to one of the most brilliant books written in the late 1960s by Guy Debord, which was the book called The Society of the Spectacle. And Debord argued, obviously, with the advent of global satellite communication systems and the emergence and the normalization of the television, the way in which societies were becoming far more image conscious. Now, we live in an age today of the global media spectacle and the imminent global media spectacle. And I think what defines our age in particular is that we're all imminently forced witness to violent events. And 9-11 was a was a big shift in that. But this idea then about that all violence is justified. That the, the, that's the point, right? So even the attacks of 9-11 were justified in one way or another by the people committing the violence. And in that sense there's always that naked appeal to justification. And and that naked appeal to justification always has to connect the violence to some narrative of of the greater good, so we can dispose of a certain group of people because in the long run the the ends will justify the means around this the destruction becomes worthy of the act because it it it, it appeals to something greater than the self now, in the context of religious violence, that appeal is always to God because you know it it's simply god's will on earth that the violence takes place in the context of nations, the violence always appeals to the nation. In the context of ideology, it always appeals to the ideology that, it, you know, the liberal violence becomes an appeal to liberalism because it will make the world a safer and more harmonious place and so on. Now, in terms of the linking back to the spectacle, then, as I said, we can we can tell so much about violence by who is the intended audience. Now, this applies on a very micro level to a, to a broad macro level. You know, the If you think of domestic abuse, when a husband is abusing a wife, for instance, you know, often in the presence of children, it's all about a spectacle of violence, it's all about asserting patriarchal domination within the context of a house and there's always an audience there's always you know a perpetrator a victim and a witnessing to the violence and that's where the violence has always this kind of triangulation sometimes the victim is the witness as well and so they kind of collapse into that in the context then of much more global forms of violence Again, we can think of the violence of 9 11 or the violence of ISIS. There's a very clear audience in mind, or at least multiple audiences in mind, where, first of all, it's about getting populations to be very fearful of their own very existence. And the other aspect, of course, of that type of violence is also acts as a recruitment tool as well, in a way to get people to buy into the idea that through violence you can bring about worldwide transformation. And I think that's where the seduction of violence really enters into the discussion, because in order for violence to be mobilized, it has to be seductive. People have to desire the violence. They have to feel like they will be kind of emancipated through violence, that they can have their voices listened to, their subjectivity heard, or at least they can utilize violence in order to reinforce the desire for established forms of domination and control. So in that sense, I think it it operates very much at the level of desire, and that connects to ideas of a spectacle, which allows us to triangulate, as I say, that question between perpetrator, victim, and witnesses.
0: Mm. And does this speak to, if I interpreted what you said before correctly, that a lot or maybe all violence is related to what you call sacred violence? And I want to read a quote from you. You say, let us recall that all violence, especially modern violence, is a violence of movement. There is no greater freedom than to deliver violence without mediation. This is the foundational principle of every colonial project and the defining characteristic of the U.S. today. The nation itself is a globally ambitious project whose entire history has been defined by migration, flight, and the nomadism of its killing machines, end quote. I think a lot of people, we've talked about these forms of violence on the show before, and I think a lot of people would interpret these forms of modern violence as being secular, being driven by political institutions or corporate powers. But I'm curious about how you see this relating to sacred violence and deeper faith and belief systems.
1: First of all, in regards to the quote, there's a number of you know maybe just for your your audiences if they're interested in exploring some of these ideas more. There's there's two kind of references I would draw upon there. First of all, is the phenomenal work that was done by Anna Rent. and Anna Arendt was a very famous scholar. Obviously, was became. Uh, very renowned for her coverage of the trial of Adolf Eichmann on behest of the New Yorker magazine. Now, what what Anna Arendt, especially in her book, The Origins of Totalitarianism, understood that what defined Nazism was precisely a commitment to total freedom. But total freedom for some, of course, if, against the, the complete lack of any freedom for others. And what she says was, you know, what we realized through the Holocaust was... This idea of total freedom meant the total freedom to do anything, to the point of the total freedom to destroy entire worlds. And that, in, in that sense, where that violence becomes a violence which is inextricably linked to a particular conception of freedom. And a particular conception of freedom, which is a freedom and you know the idea of without mediation, is, it comes into that then a violence which knows no limits right? a violence which can just accelerate. And, and, and another part and another reference from that then was by the late French philosopher called Paul Virilio, who wrote a fabulous book in the 1970s called Speed and Politics. And Virilio's point was that politics t- today is defined by speed speed conquers has actually conquered space i mean you think about this in terms of instantaneous communication you know speed has conquered space and and what we get in an age today as Vir- virilio pointed all wars are wars of movement if you want and this was a point which was also picked up by another French philosopher called Gilles Deleuze, who argued that if people are being oppressed, it's not that their rights are being denied, but their movements are being restricted. And I think there's, there's a lot in that that can be excavated. Now, in terms of the, the second point, then, around questions of the sacred, this is something which I explore in a great deal of detail in my latest book called *Ecce Humanitas, Beholding the Pain of Humanity. And... I guess what I really tried to deal with in this book is, I ask the question, what is it that if, if we can say that violence, as you point out, is a continuum throughout human history, but we don't think that violence is necessarily natural, then how do we account for the ways in which violence can constantly re? invent itself and can be constantly re-smuggled back into the social system. Now, for me, the way in which that happens, as I said, is there's always this kind of appeal to some kind of greater good. The violence can always be rationalized, reasoned, and so forth. But just to say the greater good is not good enough to give us a sufficient explanation as to why we give ourselves over to violence. And what I realized was that The way in which violence operates is precisely through a distinct appeal to the sacred. And um, what I mean by the sacred then is that sacred is basically what we might call, you know, without getting too theoretical, it is a metaphysical cloak which gives absolute value and meaning to a social order. Now, what I try to do in the book then is map out The change in narratives around violence, especially as they move from, first of all, earlier, if you think, for instance, of earlier Christian forms of violence, which were linked to the Crusades and ideas of just war, that was always carried out in the name of the sacred object of Christ. So Jesus Christ becomes this ultimate sacrifice, this ultimate sacred object, through which violence can be carried out in the name of Christianity. With the advent of modernity, the body of Christ gets very much replaced by the military hero. So the hero now becomes the sacred object, almost like the untouchable thing. You're not allowed to criticize because they've died for our freedoms. We all know those kind of narratives which get presented to us. So with the advent of modernity, the sacred object remains. And even though we enter into this age of so-called secularity, The religiosity of a nation state is very clear, very prevalent, very dominant. And this gets taken up further, I argue, in the book by liberalism, where one of the things we notice in the 1990s, where you have a globally ambitious liberalism, what they end up doing is turn victims into sacred objects. So you have, for instance, the oppressed woman or the young child who we must go to war to save because they are such precious sacred objects, almost like pure objects, that we can justify violence in their name. And I think we can then write of a particular continuity of the history of violence through these different appeals to do, almost like sacrosanct objects, objects which we are not allowed to criticize, objects which become these kind of sacred points of concentration, which allows constantly violence to happen. So. The body of Christ constantly justified violence in the name of Christianity. The body of the hero who fell in previous wars would allow us to continue to fight in their name. And how often we were told you can't desecrate the name of soldiers who've fallen in battle. The same with the wars on terror. You know, it was very difficult to say, well, actually, I don't think we should bomb Afghanistan because there was always done in the name of women and children who become new sacred objects. So I think that is where the violence needs that kind of sacredness. And I guess my point then is to say that it's not that the sacred is is almost like a self-evident truth. It's manifest through violence. It's the violence which allows the sacred to have such a hold over us. And that, to me, is where we need to... So if we're going to kind of break open, or if we're going to think of a politics beyond violence, to me, that means thinking of a politics beyond the sacred and sacrifice too.
0: It's interesting because at the same time, it's a lot of people's spiritual connections to the land and to earth that has been activating and motivating change or activism in order to undo the dominant violent system that has been justified by other belief systems. So maybe it invites the view that sacred violence and sacred activism aren't necessarily opposite sides and perhaps are both subjective and sometimes even two in the same because they are definitely related in that way. And to this point, a lot of people call these protests nonviolent protests. There have been a lot of transformational social movements and revolutions aiming to uproot the status quo. And instead of nonviolent protests, I think that perhaps could be even understood as sacrificial violence for a better world because it's trying to take down the current existing system. But I wonder, is there this underlying ongoing war on the idea of what our betterment and advancement of humanity even means? And are these ideas what then manifest in the different types of violence that show up, whether they are rationalized and normalized by the system in order to justify the status quo to continue or otherwise what's seen as disruptive and what gets criminalized and named explicitly as violence that is to be condemned
1: so, so two points there the The first point around I understand, for instance, the this constant need to appeal to the sacred because you can't say, well, you know, how does life have meaning without the sacred and I think it was an imp- it's been an important turn in activism that really happens, especially post nineteen ninety four and I spent a considerable amount of time in Chiapas with the Zapatistas. And one thing which I found obviously very interesting about the Zapatistas and the indigenous Maya more generally was the ways in which they were really rethinking what resistance might mean in the latter part of the 20th and 21st century. Now, one thing we can say, of course, in the history of indigenous groups in Latin America, almost pre-Spanish arrival, of course, it was they, they mastered sacrifice. They understood the power of the sacrificial in very literal and physical ways. But what I think was interesting about the Zapatistas was a way in which they moved away from a very dogmatic Idea of the sacred and the sacrificial, and replaced it with something which seemed to be far more, yes, spiritual, but I don't know whether the sacred was, you know, of course, there's a there's a distinct connection to the earth and to the idea of they're the people of the corn and so forth. I think it plays to something what we might call the ancestral and something of the mm-hmm. ancestral, which is already very much there. I, f- I find that there's wonderful references to that, especially in the artwork of people such as Anna Mendieta, for instance. But the ancestral, I think, is something different to the sacred. If we understand the sacred as being something which is metaphysically determined and structured and an absolute truth, and the one thing which I thought was remarkable about the Zapatistas was actually to disrupt this notion of the absolute truth, and that mm-hmm. politics is not about truth it's about intuition and, and and you know and the way in which particularly the writings of subcomandante marcos was almost like a conduit through history and you know and he would write in fables beautiful use of political fabulation to kind of narrate these old ancestral tales and and i think there was something then very powerful about that and there still is something very powerful about that need for a certain spirituality and I think it's Bowie who says, you know, that people who fear hell have religion. People who've been to hell need spirituality. And I think that is something important in that recognition of the spiritual, which doesn't have to collapse back into dogmatic visions of the sacred. So I I think that that's that's an important point. And maybe the ancestral does something different to the sacred in that sense. Now, in terms of the disruption of the status quo, I think it's such an important question in, in terms of the moment in which we're living in right now because we're living in a profoundly disruptive moment where it seems kind of strange when you think about the whole conditions of the lockdown and the condition of the lockdown where it almost seems like everything came to a standstill, where societies came to a standstill. We were all literally locked into our homes But power and the way power has been transformed has been so disruptive and transformed to the point where we can barely recognize the operations of power pre-pandemic to where we are today. And what I'm particularly talking about is the, the rapid acceleration of the power of technology and the power of technology over our lives now in a way in which if we're talking about a crisis as being a condition of possibility for forms of governance and power, the and this is one another thing I, write, I wrote about in the book Echo Humanitas, was I paraphrased Nietzsche when I basically said that liberalism is dead. And I truly believe that the, pan, the global pandemic has been the first crisis of a post-liberal world. And we're still trying to understand and make sense what that world looks like But what we do know is it's governed by technology and it's governed by the power that the big tech companies now have over the world is unrivaled. And this is ushering in and accelerating a new system of political control, which for people who are deeply concerned with the human condition and what it means to be human in the 21st century and have a profound as you mentioned, you know, a profound relationship to the earth and to life and to ecology. This idea that technology is going to save us, we know is a misnomer. We need a very different ethics to resolve the world's problems than a technological one. And I think therein lies a fundamental disruption to the status quo. Now, the question then becomes, what kinds of violences are we allowed to talk about if we genuinely believe that the technological system is the unrivaled source of power in the world. It's the one that's mediating all conversation. It's the one that's mediating what we see, what we don't see, what we can discuss, what we can't discuss. And I think that that, therein lies the big challenge moving forward for activism and for just a broader sense of what it means to be human in the 21st century.
0: Yeah. It really has felt like the ongoing and maybe accelerating centralization of control and power has been veiled by this justification again for the betterment of the world. And as you've said, the triumph of technological advancement makes violence more efficient. I found that to be extremely perceptive and also accurate. And I had been questioning, you know, as the economic and various production and extractive systems are becoming globalized and centralized, yes, a lot of that is done in the name of efficiency, but efficiency for what? And I think the efficiency of violence is exactly what that efficiency has been about. And I just don't even know why we've oriented our society towards improving this form of efficiency as advancement. So mm-hmm. I'd be curious to hear if you have anything that comes to mind for you on this subject that you want to add.
1: Well, yeah, I, I think it's really, you know, first of all, if we think about the promise of technology and the promise of the information and communications revolutions—you can say on the one hand, it, it's enabling and, and it breaks down borders and it breaks down barriers. It allows conversations, precisely like this one, to happen. And you can kind of say, "Well, okay, this is this is great." And you can have these—the breaking down of distance uh, as as an inhibitor. But then, when I think about, for instance, the ability for humans to communicate, first of all is very different from having a viable sense of a political community. And I think what we've also, we've collapsed, and this has been disastrous politically, we've collapsed the idea of community with connectivity. So to be connected sometimes just now means that we have a community. And we know from spending two minutes on social media, that's just absolute nonsense. Just to be connected doesn't mean you have any sense of community at all. People, to have a community, need something very visceral. They need to be in close proximity with people. They need to communicate on a day-to-day basis. You need to understand the flaws of people. You can't... It's not about curated existences, which you have on social media, but also what... What I become increasingly observant of on social media. We're meant to be living in this age of the mass proliferation of information. Most of my social feeds every single day is just repetitive. You kind of think, well, where is the alternative story in all of this? It becomes, you know, and people say, well, you're operating in these bubbles. But even when you consciously try to find alternative news sources now, the world looks increasingly, in terms of the disasters which are being spoken about and the crises and so on, it looks remarkably homogenised. And you you think, well, there's something going on here, which is the question is, you know, it's not about what's being spoken about, but what's not being spoken about, what's not being shown, what's not being represented. And I think therein lies a, a distinct mediation on the types of spectacles of suffering which we want to pay attention to and the ones which are being cancelled out. But I think there's another phenomenon which Connects to a project which I've been developing over the past two years with my wife, who is a Mexican artist, based around the question of disappearance. And what's really striking, I think, about the violence—I think one of the most harrowing forms of violence we can imagine is disappearance, and to just simply vanish and disappear without a trace. Now, what we've noticed in with the advent of especially like in countries such as Mexico, but, but globally, you know, the, the, the more connected we are, the more information we have about the world, the more surveillance there seems to be about the world, the more there's been an exponential rise in the disappearance of humans. Literally people taking off the streets and just disappearing. How can we make sense of that seeming contradiction? But maybe it's not a contradiction because... And I think that there there lies a real serious challenge for us to explain how can we have so much technological surveillance about the world and yet people can simply vanish without a trace in tens of thousands. And this is happening globally. And I think that is exposes, I think, one of the myths of technology is that actually it's much easier to dispose of life the more technologized we become. And that, to me, has to be a real challenge to those who would argue that technology will save us because I don't think it does.
0: Yeah, that really challenges the dominant beliefs I think many have about surveillance and security and who this all serves. And it's interesting because we're at a time when I think A lot of people are turning to the online world in order to build digital communities, in order to fill the void that a lot of us face from a lack of physical place-based and really grounded community. A lot of that, of course, having been ruptured or displaced through the forces of corporate monopolization and, of course, the centralization of power. And yet often these digital communities being detached from place and physicality are incapable of truly serving and feeding our sense of interdependence as living and breathing creatures and a lot of these communities online as well are built around shared interests and values which might provide a sense of emotional comfort and security but i don't know that they are enough to get to the heart of it all to address how digitization has evolved, as you mentioned, how we even think about our needs for our community and how that might relate to the less tangible forms of violence that have become normalized.
1: Yeah. And I think a lot of this, again, you, we can trace it back to 1994. The example of the Zapatistas are, I think, a good example here because the moment the Zapatistas arrived on the scene, there was almost like, it was like a kind of a bourgeois Fetishization of this is the first internet revolution, and these, you know, and this is the, a revolution which is going to change the way we understand digital capacities for instigating social transformation. And I remember when I went to Chiapas, you know, none of the indigenous people there had mobile phones. They weren't all on Twitter and, you know, having a Facebook account. It was the uprising which they instigated, took 10 years of planning, and the revolution was. Very much local, based on indigenous peoples trying to just, in the most desperate conditions, eke out some local form of autonomy, which put them in deeply precarious situations. But they realized they had nobody else but themselves. It had nothing to do with digitalization. Yes, the digitalization might have prevented the Mexican state committing a genocide because it resulted in international... because of the, the knowledge of the revolution happening, go into Chiapas. And that might have been what was a bit slightly different. But the actual sustaining of the so-called, you know, the revolution and the quest for autonomy requires people working together in a very local committed way, which has nothing to do with the hyperaccelerization of digitalization. But it's also another thing which I find maybe a good lesson, which I'm only starting to really understand more from the lesson of the, the Zapatistas. If you think about, for instance, the idea of digital activism today, Most of it is just completely predictable and dull because people feel like they have to say something profound every single goddamn day of the year. And you see this on Twitter. You have these these Twitter activists who... You can go back through their stream over the past two years and they haven't said anything new other than just repeating the same process over and over. And one of the brilliant things about the Zapatistas and Subcomandante Marcos in particular, I thought was a phenomenal thinker of the 20th century and the early 21st century, was they understood the importance every now and again of just being silent. There'd be times where they would just go back into their communities and you wouldn't hear from them for six months. And silence becomes also a weapon where you can actually use it to say something meaningful. I think we kind of confuse activism today with just constant being present and constantly saying something and constantly having the need to be constantly active in whatever kind of way. And rather than actually stepping back and saying, maybe this takes a bit more time, maybe we need to ask deeper questions about the nature of the human condition. Maybe we need to understand from history by far the most devastating revolutions or the most disastrous human consequences try to happen overnight. And actually, the, recognizing perhaps the most radical thing we can do in politics today is insist upon a new temporality. I think what the world leads right now is to slow things down, not to speed things up. Because I think th- this has been this this commitment to the hyper acceleration of everything. I think is the, the late sociologist Zygmunt Bauman argued that we're living in a runaway world. I think the world has sped up so far now; nobody knows whether they're even on the treadmill anymore. And I think that's that's really dangerous for all of us. I think.
0: Yeah, I'm sure our listeners will really resonate with what you just said because a lot of people really loved our past conversation with Dr. Bio Akomolafe when he talked about our crisis in form that is showing up in the ways that activism has taken shape and also just his invitation for us to really slow down and tune in and to go deep. So I think all of this will leave our audience with a lot more to think about. And of course, social media and mass media have supposedly connected the world. And one of the results of that is that it's increased a lot of our exposures to and how we bear witness to violence at a much greater scale. So I'm thinking about whether this constant exposure actually desensitizes us and erodes our urge and abilities at a collective level to reject the normalization and perpetuity of violence. And I also question if we even have the human capacity at an individual level to process the scale and forms of violence that are happening at the global level.
1: I I think it's... It has desensitized us to a point, but I think what we need to understand perhaps more broadly is, you know, you talk about technology has connected us, but it's also divided us in ways which have been hyper-accelerated. And one of the things it's, when people feel insecure and vulnerable about their very sense of subjectivity, the collapse back into identity politics is very easily understandable. And actually what we've learned now very clearly from the analysis of the way organizations such as Facebook operate is they like nothing more than the culture wars and the battles between identities because it's highly profitable. It it becomes the surest way to commodify protest and so on in in a way that becomes gets a very easily marketable appeal now if we look at, at almost like a kind of a digital anthropological approach to the way in which violence operates across social media what we see is a complete not just a desensitization but almost like a devout refusal to recognize some forms of violence Whereas there's a hyper arousal to other forms of violence. And actually, what you a great deal of then what takes place on social media today, are very violent, I mean, discursively violent campaigns around who is the greatest victim of history. So you have these constant battles where people are saying, no, we, have this, we suffer from violence, you don't suffer from violence, or our violence is greater than your violence. As if victimhood is some kind of competition. And I find this... the the divisive nature of technology to be completely counterintuitive to what the world needs right now. And we talk about, you know, this idea of slowing things down. We talk about almost like the imminent violence in which we can all now kind of engage in on on social media in a ways in which people are completely unaware it's even happened. If I wanted to, I could cut 500 people from a Facebook listing. I have who say that they want to be so-called virtual friends of yours and you can you know, orchestrate the digital cull without anybody knowing about it, without any kind of comeback, because I might find these 500 people, their views are profoundly disagreeable to the way in which I see or relate to the world. And what I want on my social media grouping is all people who think and see the world like I do and will every now and again tell me how brilliant my thoughts are and so on and so forth. If you would have explained that to me when I was a 14-year-old kid in the playground, I would have just laughed back at you because that's not reality. You know, Mm -hmm. especially when you grow up in like an area where I did where, you know, you're growing up in conditions where things are tense and, you know, you live politics every day. You learn about politics in the playground. And and you know that you can't just simply block someone or wish to vanish them out of existence. You you have to learn to tolerate people who sometimes, you know, you would disagree with or even the kids you dislike end up hanging around with you for a bit because you have to learn to tolerate them. They live in the next street. So you have you're working with that close proximity to people. And I think this is one of the things which social media has done is it's created these kind of artificial universes of so-called community which when you strip it back then prevents us from having the real difficult questions that society needs to happen today you know I, I look at the united states of america right now and i you know and it's it's sometimes deeply worrying to see what's happening there and the way in which social divides have been really hyper accelerated and i look there and i think i see the the young black kids who have been really affected by the black lives matter movement and then you see kids from so-called broken white communities who would go you know along with Donald Trump and but even though a large part of their communities are equally subjected to police brutality and get shut down by the police and I think why are these communities not speaking to one another they are far more in common than This political elite, which is controlling the societies. And that to me is the conversations we need to have. And those are very difficult questions. They're not questions that you can resolve on Twitter. You know, they require people sitting down in a room and saying, you know what, I'm going to listen to you. I might find your political views very difficult, but I need to, you know, if we're going to try to repair the world, we have to really engage with ideas and people who we find very difficult. I can spend the rest of my life talking to people who will profoundly agree with what I'm going to say about the world. That's easy. The more difficult thing is to try to engage with somebody who sees and feels the world from an entirely different perspective. And I think social media doesn't provide us any answers to any of that at all. But I think if we're going to move forward as if there is anything we might call progressive, and that again is what something which I found remarkable with the Zapatistas, was they were saying, we're not looking for any revenge, we want to break down the borders, we want to open up an ethical conversation with people who we think might disagree with us, and I think that question of disagreement to me has to be a basis of how we might think politics going forward.
0: Yeah, I really resonate with a lot of what you just said, which is why I'm personally trying to move away from social media platforms like Instagram and Twitter, because I found the culture to be extremely reactive. Mm -hmm. And for example, I've been criticized for even quoting or interviewing people who have some views that are disagreeable. And I just found that to be really reductive and I just wrote this recently, but I said that I reject this idea of building a quote-unquote responsible media ecosystem because I I really want to see the world for what it is. I want to see the complexity of people and not feed into these superficial bubbles and the simplification of the human experience because it's not real, like you said, and My last question for you is, I know you've called for our need to rethink how humanity is defined and to rethink the relationship between love, violence, and sacrifice, which you say we will only achieve by appreciating in more intimate and poetic detail the wounds of history so we can journey into the depths of the void and still retain our love for humanity, regardless of the violence that continues to make its sacred calling, end quote. To these invitations, Mm -hmm. I want to ask, is it possible to love without sacrifice and to build without taking apart? And what have you been pondering on these subjects? And what final inquiries would you like to invite our listeners to keep thinking about after this conversation?
1: I, I think love is the most profound political category we know. And, and it's, the, it's, it's the original political category because if we think about why do we want community or why do we want security? or why do we want rights, or why do we want justice, it's often not just for ourselves, but it's done because we care about other people. Why do I want security for my families? Well, because I love them, right? And in that sense, love comes before security. Love comes before freedom. Love comes, or love is freedom. Love comes before the demand then for rights and justice. Now, if we start from that proposition that love is the foundational or the original category in terms of the formation of political ideas. To me, we wouldn't need security if it wasn't for love. Why would I why would I care if people I didn't love were not secured, right? So to me, if we start with that star point, the question then becomes what kind of love? Now in in the um the, the Eke book that I, I talk about, I I start with a very early episode in one of the very first books in Western literature, which is Aeschylus A- or it is And I think it's the first known recorded book of literature in the Western literary canon. Now, what's remarkable about the book is that the book begins with the story of King Agamemnon, who wants to become victorious in the Trojan War. and In order for him to appease the gods so that the ships can sail and he can be victorious in the Trojan War. He sacrifices his virgin daughter, Iphigenia. And I think this is a profound moment in the history of politics and the history of Western literature and the history of Western societies as we know it, because you have a father who appeals to the gods and will sacrifice the love of his daughter for the love of his people now the first thing that you can say is that no people should ever have to carry such a sacrifice no sacrifice is ever worth it right the sacrifice of a father's you know innocent child should never be worth it for the love of his people and it's what i call in the book the violence of an artificial love because clearly there's there's no love in that but i also think if we strip this back further you know your question about love without sacrifice I'm deeply in love with my wife, and it's not a sacrifice. I don't see love as sacrifice at all. And love is not a contract either. Love, to me, and the, the love I feel for my wife and my daughter, there's no sacrifice involved in that. To me, the kind of love, I guess, which I have in mind, which is personal and deeply political, is the love which gives everything and demands nothing back in return. That to me is what love means, is that you're willing to give everything and you demand nothing back in return. That's not a sacrifice. That's just love. And I think this has been one of the conceits that we've given to ourselves, that you know, love is important for politics, but love only matters if it can evidence sacrifice, like Agamemnon sacrificing the daughter, like God sacrificing Jesus, like the nation sacrificing soldiers to protect our freedoms. Like us having to sacrifice humanity now so we can save ourselves into some new technological dystopia. And I think if we can rethink love outside of that and actually say that, you know, being human is more than enough. We don't need to turn humans into sacred objects. We don't need to change, turn children into sacred objects. Being a child is, should be more than enough for us to recognize the beauty and wonder of a child. We don't need to make them sacred objects. So for me, then, that the idea of love without sacrifice is not an abstract – well, it is an abstract idea, but it's an abstract idea in a way in which it appeals to the best of the abstract. And, and it's an idea which has very real concrete meaning as well, and a concrete meaning which could allow us to maybe – transform the idea of societies where we can love people but we will not demand them to sacrifice themselves in order to save the future
0: the We want justice and peace We want freedom and equality We have all become slaves And the system has failed And the empire was built On the shame and the guilt It's a death. What has been the most impactful book that you've read or a publication you follow?
1: I'd have to say th- there's two books, actually. I I, can't, I, I was thinking about this when I saw the question. And it's two books which I always, you know, I, and I say to my students, one of them in particular is, is phenomenal. The other one, which I think just stays with me. And the first is Alice in Wonderland which I think is Mm. actually the best book of political theory ever written. And I think it's such a phenomenal story about the power of political imagination and also a wonderful critique of violence as well. And the second is Dante's Inferno, which deals in a really deeply poetic way with precisely that triangulation between perpetrators, victims and witnesses of violence. So I think that the two of them... Uh yeah, two books which I think really stand out as the two books which I would certainly take to a desert island. Mm.
0: What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded?
1: There's a brilliant quote by the, the late Russian film director, Andrei Tarkovsky, when he says, a book read by a thousand different people is a thousand different books. And I think that's something which can keep you humble particularly as an author, that you recognize that you have no idea how the book is going to be interpreted. But you should also recognize that's a beautiful thing as well, that it doesn't become a dogma. And it's open to so many different journeys on other people's lives.
0: And what is your biggest source of inspiration right now?
1: Oh, that would have to be my wife. She's a formidable artist, but also an exceptional human. And I think we need to keep hold of something of the exceptionality of human beings in this techno world in which we're operating.
0: Well, we are coming to a close, but Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Brad's work and his numerous books, you can head to brad-evans.co.uk. Brad, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a huge honor to have you and I really appreciate all that you've left with us here to think more deeply about after this conversation. But for now, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: There's a beautiful quote by Franz Kafka, and he says that uh, we should only read the books that wound us. A book should be like an axe which breaks open the frozen sea within us. I think that would be my advice to people, is to seek out those kind of books or seek out that kind of artwork or seek out that kind of engagement. Be prepared to be wounded in a way which can be beautifully emancipating as well.
0: This episode of Green Dreamer was brought to you by listeners like you. To help us keep this show alive and reciprocate support for our work, you can head to greendreamer.com support. We also dearly appreciate the five-star reviews and whenever you get to share your favorite episodes with friends. We also want to thank our partnership with Caliapeya Foundation, which shares our vision and understanding that ecological, cultural, and spiritual renewal are interdependent. The song featured in this episode is Power to Change by Luna Beck. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our production manager is Tammy Gan. Our transcripts are edited by Janice Cantieri. And I'm your host, Shane. Take care, and I'll catch you soon in the next episode.